Yeah, pray with me. Father, we come before you right now, and uh, that song describes the way a lot of us feel. Like everything's so heavy, we're holding on to something, and we know we're not the center of the universe, but still at the same time, Father, it's all we can think about, it's all we can deal with right now. And so, Father, we bring all that to the table right now, and we want to be honest about it. We're going to open up your word, and we're going to take a look at what you have to say, and we're going to look at your son Jesus, and our hope and our prayer is that somehow what he has to say and what we see in him and through him uh, will bring some sort of change into our minds and into our hearts. Uh, God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're in this series where we're talking about how we all have different versions of Jesus that we bring to the table, right? Like we all have these different perceptions of Jesus. We have this tendency to kind of build our own Jesus, kind of like we're customizing, you know, our our burger at a burger bar or something like that. And so we're looking at the fact that some of us, we come to the table and we kind of think Jesus is kind of like a nice guy from the past. He was a good teacher, something like that. Some of us have a perception of Jesus that he was kind of uh, this mythical person, kind of like King Arthur where you go, I'm sure there was some sort of historical figure that's something like the version version of Jesus we've created, but it's probably not exactly the same. There's some of us who go, no, he's my savior, he's my Lord, he's my king. And then there's some of us, we're just not sure what to think about Jesus. And across our campuses, we've all gonna, we're all going to have all kinds of different perceptions of Jesus. And so what we're trying to do is sift through all of that and, and really see who Jesus really is in the midst of all those different perceptions. I encountered a different perception of Jesus a couple weeks ago when a friend of mine, he's not a Christian, he sent me a text message with this picture uh, that said this, death of a salesman, and it was right after Easter, he sent that to me, and, and for some of us right now, like, we look at that and we're deeply offended by that, we're like, man, don't, don't talk about my Jesus that way, you know, and some of us are like, well... That's kind of my perception is that Jesus is kind of like a, like a salesman. And so, again, what we're trying to do is we're trying to sift through perceptions and get to reality. And so I just asked my friend a simple question. I said, hey, if you can name just like one instance where Jesus sold anything that benefited him as a salesman. Just name, just name one time that he did something like that. And there was kind of radio silence for a little while. And then eventually I got a response that said, well, I can't think of anything that Jesus actually did that benefited him that way. But there sure are a lot of people who are trying to benefit off of his name. Like, well, I agree with you there. I totally, I totally get that. But let's, let's be honest about this, though, for a second. If Jesus were a salesman, he's the worst salesman in the history of the universe, right? He was homeless, right? He got tortured and put on a cross and died. That's not a very good sales strategy. That didn't turn out well for him. And what we'll find if we really, if we really kind of dig down and, and, and see who Jesus really is, is that Jesus is actually never selling anything he's always trying to give something see selling things is something you do for your profit and for your benefit but giving something is something you do for someone else's profit and someone else's benefit what we're going to find if we keep examining the real Jesus is that he doesn't want something from us he wants something for us that he always wants to give us something he's thinking about what we need now That creates tension for some of us because a lot of us, we don't like receiving things. We want to earn things. We're Americans. We want to to earn our way. We want to earn our keep. We want to to stand on our own merits and our own efforts. We don't want to be handed anything. Yet Jesus is uncompromising in the fact that he's always giving to us. So if Jesus looks at us and goes, I want to give this to you, that also insinuates that he thinks we need it. A lot of us aren't comfortable with that either. A lot of us aren't comfortable with the idea that we may be lacking in some way that Jesus would say, well, you actually need something that I have to offer that you can't produce in and of yourself. And so when we come to terms with like the real Jesus, a lot of times this creates tension 
for us. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to look at a very simple story that Jesus told that really addresses this tension that resides really in all of our hearts. So we're going to be in the book of Luke. If you got your Bibles, you got your phones, you can go there right now. You can follow along on the screen. We're going to be in chapter 18 and we're going to be looking at just this really short story in verses 9 through 14. This is what Jesus said. He also, Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Oh, I fast twice a week and I, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So there's the story, all right? Real simple story, real cut and dry. And the form of this story is one of Jesus' favorite methods of teaching. It's what's known as a parable. And a parable is when Jesus would take something very familiar to his audience, something common, something that they understood, that they saw occur all the time, and would compare that to something they did not understand and was very unfamiliar to them. So that's what he's doing. He's, t- he's telling a story that's of very familiar circumstances. A couple guys go to a temple to pray, Pharisee, tax collector, they encounter those kinds of people all the time. Now notice this, this parable has a target audience. And that target audience is specified before he tells the story. It says, to those who trusted in themselves for their own righteousness and looked at others with contempt. That's the target audience. He's actually targeting this story to people who are very, very self-righteous, right? Now, self-righteousness is a really interesting thing because when it happens in the church, that's like the ultimate in irony. And it shouldn't happen in the church, but it happens all the time in the church because righteousness by definition means always doing the right thing at all times without fail. You just like always get it right in every way. So self-righteousness means literally to trust that you are always right all the time without fail. Everything you do, everything you say, every action you make, every thought you think, every belief that you have is 100% right all the time without fail. You are the captain of your fate. You are the master of your soul. You, you are in charge and you are steering your ship in the right direction at all times. You've got it all down. The interesting thing about self-righteousness is that it always has a horizontal expression. It has, a, it has this tendency to lead to us comparing ourselves to other people. You'll notice that not only was this story targeted at people who trusted in themselves for their own righteousness, but as a symptom of that, they also looked at others with contempt. And self-righteousness always manifests itself by way of comparison to other people. All right, so that's the target audience for this story that, that, that Jesus is teaching. Now, let me tell you what just happened across multiple campuses with thousands of people. All of us just breathed a collective sigh of relief. All of us just went, thank God, finally, a weekend at Flatirons where there's going to be a teaching that doesn't apply to me. Because, because right now we've all got, we're all going, and also I'm so glad she's here to hear this. And I'm so glad that dude's here. And I'm so, I wish that my boss was here. And so some of us are like writing down names of people right now or mentally making a, making a list of people that we're going to download this sermon. We're going to email it. We're going to make up a fake email and we're going to send it to them to go, you need to, you need to hear this thing about self-righteousness because no one, here's, here's the deal. Self-righteous people never think they're self-righteous. 
a symptom of self-righteousness is being blind to the fact that you are in fact self-righteous. So right now we're all going, oh, get them, Jesus. Get those self-righteous people because I'm not in that group. I'm not in that target audience. I'm, I, that's not me at all. All of us right now are going, thank you, Jesus, for talking about something at some point that has nothing to do with me. I'll just kick back and relax this weekend and maybe they'll play another cool song or something like that. Well, let me, let, what if I told you in my best 30 for 30 voice, What if I told you that we all, every last one of us, me too, defaults to self-righteousness all the time? Right now you may be going, nope, no I don't. I do not struggle with self-righteousness. Well, even if you don't believe me, let's just lean in for a few minutes and look back at the story and break it down in some smaller chunks and see if just maybe we might fall in the audience that Jesus intended this story to land on their hearts. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. So if you've been tracking with us in this series, we've already introduced these these groups of people. Pharisees, by definition, their name meant the separated ones. Like Jim said last week, they're like the religious police. They're the ones who are like making a list, checking it twice to see if you're being naughty or nice. They're going to report you to the big guy. Like they're the religious elite. Like they're the religious experts. Like they are the ones everybody looks to and goes, man, we could never be as good at them as them at doing religious things. Right? Those are the, those are the Pharisees. The, the other man who goes up to the temple to pray is a tax collector. Now, we've talked about this a little bit, too, because tax collectors, their very job description in ancient Israel required them to turn their back on their faith, on their friends, on their family, on their heritage, on their God, and say, I'm actually going to turn my back on all of that so I can make a buck. They were the ultimate sellouts. They collected money and extorted money from their own people for their own benefit for Rome, for this evil empire. So consequently, no one was looked down on more. No one was held in more contempt. No one was hated more than tax collectors. They were absolutely despised. And both of these men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, go to the same place. They go to the temple to do the same thing, to pray. But what happens after that could not be any more different. Look at this. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. So here's what I want you to notice. This, this, this Pharisee standing as he prays, which is actually very normal Jewish posture for prayer. That's not abnormal at all. But he's standing by himself. That stands to reason because a Pharisee, by definition, is what? A separated one. Can't mix with people like this, especially like this tax collector over here. The second thing is this. His, his prayer has, is totally saturated with horizontal comparisons to other people. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy and this guy and this guy and especially this guy. Right? And if you really break it down, his prayer is not really a prayer. Prayer is often an expression of need, but this man's not expressing any need. He's saying, thank you, God, for all the cool stuff that he does. Thank you, God, that I'm so good at doing what I do. It's a really disingenuous prayer that doesn't express any needs at all. He thinks that he just does a really good job at doing the most important things all the time without fail. And he gives kind of a laundry list of things that he does. I I fast twice a week. Now, that's interesting. 
Because the Old Testament law only required a fast of one time a year. Fasting meaning going without food as an expression of, God, you're the provider for me. So every time I have like a hunger pain, that reminds me to, 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 to be reminded that you provide for me and that you're more important than bread and food and water and things like that. That was only required one time a year. But this, the Pharisees actually did fast twice a week. Interestingly enough, they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. And the reason why that's important is because Mondays and Thursdays were when all the markets were open. So everybody from all the outs, outskirts of the towns and cities would come into the towns and cities to do their business and to do their trading and to, and to be there to, to sell their goods. So the Pharisees would actually wait until they had the largest audience to put on the best religious show. Interesting. Makes sense why Jesus said this in Matthew 6. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. Jesus' favorite title or phrase to use to describe the Pharisees was that of hypocrite, which means actor or one who wears a mask. And maybe right now you're going, man, I, I, I can see how they're the type of people who wear a mask and they pretend, but I, I'm, not a, I'm not a person who's an actor. I'm not a person who wears a mask. I'm not a person who pretends to be something I'm not. I'm not a person who pretends that everything's okay when it's not okay. Well, can I, can I just ask a couple questions? Do you ever find yourself finding comfort through comparison to others? Saying phrases like, well, at least I don't do that. At least I'm not like her at least I'm not like him. I'm not on that level. I do. I do it all the time. Let me ask another question. Do you ever find yourself pretending everything is okay when it's not okay? Do you ever have somebody like walk up to you and go, hey, how you doing? And it's someone you love. It's someone you trust. It's someone who knows you really well. And you're like, I'm fine. I'm good. Everything's okay. When clearly it's not okay. Anyone ever find themselves doing that? Because I do. All the time. So maybe even right now you're going, I'm not so sure. Well, I think we all have masks and I think we all are hypocrites at times and I think we all find ourselves putting out something that's actually a false representation of what's really going on on the inside. And it's understandable because to put down our masks is a really scary thing to do, isn't it? I mean, think about, like, let's get in the head of this Pharisee here for a minute and think about what's going on inside his mind and his heart. I mean, what would it be like to get up every morning knowing that you have to be perfect all the time? Regardless of what's going on in here, regardless of what's swirling around in here, you have to look like you got everything together at all times without fail. What kind of pressure would that create? And what kind of secrets do you think he had? And do you think he ever kind of dreamed about just kind of phoning it all in and just running away from it all and getting out from underneath of the pressure of it? Do you think that he ever considered being real? But that's pretty scary, isn't it? And after all, he's a Pharisee. He's a separated one, which means by definition he's separated from everybody around him, which means that he can't be honest and open with anyone, which means that he has to convince himself that this is the real version of himself, so much so that he can stand and pray before the living God and pretend that this is who he really is. You ever felt like that? You ever seen that dynamic in your life? See, this is why self-righteousness is so lethal. Think about it. Last week, Jim taught about how Jesus went to this party with this tax collector, this dude named Levi or Matthew, right? 
He goes to that party, and look at how it goes down, Matthew chapter 9. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, hey, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard, it, heard what they said, those, he said this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but I came for sinners. And here's the, here's the problem. The Pharisees standing outside the party hear Jesus say, well, look, I came for sick people. I came for unrighteous people. And all the Pharisees standing outside the party go, well, then you didn't come for us because we're well. We're righteous. We're good. Another similar circumstance, Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. And the Pharisees heard, well, we're not lost. Guess you didn't come for us. Now, did Jesus say that the Pharisees were well? Did he say that the Pharisees were righteous? Did he say that the Pharisees were found? No. And this is the tragedy of self-righteousness, that you could stand outside the party that you are invited to, but you uninvite yourself because you think you're good. You think you don't need Jesus. You think you're well when you're not well. See, self-righteousness is a deep sickness and it's a sin. Self-righteousness is the sickness and the sin of believing you're not sick and you're not sinful. That's what self-righteousness does. And here's reality. Sin is real and we all have it. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it has real consequences. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin or the payment for sin is death, it's condemnation, it's separation from God. That's why the gospel, which literally means good news, is actually bad news before it's good news. Which means that we have to be confronted with some very hard truth before we can ever receive this thing called amazing grace. Tim Keller says it this way, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine and you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope at the same time. That's why the rest of Romans 6.23 is so important. Yeah, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. And that phrase, free gift, is so redundant, right? Like a gift is free. Like that's the definition of being a gift. Like if, if, if you hand somebody something, they go, that'll be $5. That ain't a gift, right? You're just, you're just selling something at that point. But remember, Jesus is not a salesman. He's never selling anything. He's always giving something. And yet the Pharisees were unwilling to address the tension in their heart where they were unwilling to receive anything. They had to earn everything. And so they became the separated ones, standing outside of the party. Well, meanwhile, their Savior was inside the party. Now, that's just one person in the story. That's the, that's the Pharisee. There, there is another person in the story. There's the tax collector. So let's look at him. Jesus says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, listen, I, I've taught this story, I don't know how many times. Let's just say a lot, okay? Pretty familiar with this story. And I came across something this past week I'd never come across before. And it's real subtle. It's in the original Greek, and I don't... I've got tools that help me with this, or I'm not that smart. But the original Greek here doesn't read, God have mercy on me, a sinner. It reads, God have mercy on me, the sinner. This man's perception of himself is that he is the ultimate sinner of all time. He's the worst sinner in the history of sinners. 
He is the worst screw-up in the history of screw-ups. He has tanked his life in a way that no one has ever rivaled in the history of the universe. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever looked at your life and gone, I have messed up in a way that no one has ever messed up before. This epic fail in my life is the worst epic fail in the history of epic fails. Now, let's stop and, and think about this for a second because that also, by the way, is a false perception of oneself. Think about this. To assume that you are the best sinner in the history of sinners, <laughs> that you have been so creative in your sinning that you have sinned in a whole new way that the world has never seen before, that you are the sinner of all sinners, is actually what? It's actually arrogant. It's actually this weird, arrogant thing that we can do with ourselves. And we find ourselves doing it all the time. Let me say this. Jesus has never been and never will be shocked by your sin. There's nothing you could do that would make Jesus go, man, if I would have seen that coming, I would not have gone to that cross. That wouldn't have been worth it to me. If I had known that you would have sinned in such a creative way, I would have, th this would not count for you. Jesus saw all of our sin more clearly than we could ever see it before he ever decided to go to the cross and he did it anyway. Now, this tax collector, even though he has his own false perception of himself, at least his perception of himself reveals that he has a need. And he knows he can't pretend. He knows he's at a deficit. He knows he can't manufacture his own righteousness. He knows that righteousness, if it's going to come for him, is going to have to come from somewhere outside of himself. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is a sinful, broken person. His job description is sellout. His job description is traitor. His job description reveals that he loves money more than he loves family. He can't pretend. There's no secret here. And here's the reality. The only thing worse than having a secret sin be found out is having a secret sin not get found out. The only thing worse than having a secret sin discovered is having a secret sin go undiscovered. It's not a good thing to be able to hide. It's better to fall on grace than to deny the truth, right? See, this man, his concerns, you might notice, are very different than the Pharisees. None of his concerns are horizontal. This man's concerns are only vertical. His concerns are only in relationship to God. He understands that he has a need. He understands that he needs mercy. And he's not pretending he has no masks to wear. So he actually asks God for what he needs. And he understands that what he deserves is punishment because of his sin. And his sin is real and his sin has consequences. But he's actually asking God to give him mercy. And here's the thing I find awesome. He actually believes that God is the kind of God who would actually give mercy to a person like him. He actually believes that God is the kind of God who would not punish a person who deserves punishment like him. He trusts that God's intentions towards him are all good all the time. That God actually has something to give him, not something to sell him or not something he wants from him. So let me ask you some questions. Do you believe that you have a need do you feel as if you're in some sort of deficit in your life? Like maybe you've like spent a lot of years trying to manufacture your own righteousness, your own perfection, and you're just tired. 
And are you starting to come to terms with the fact that maybe the thing you need is something you can't do for yourself? And do you know that it's okay to not be okay? Do you know that it's okay to be a mess? Do you know that you can put your mask down? Do you know that Jesus sees behind your mask? He sees the emptiness, he sees the brokenness, he sees the pain, he sees the frustration, he sees the suffering, he sees the doubt, he sees all of it. And do you know that he loves you still? Do you know that there's nothing you could do to make him love you any more? There's nothing you could do to make him love you any less? Do you know that as you're so tired of hiding that he invites you to not hide anymore, to put down the mask? Do you know that he has more for you than you could ever ask or dare imagine? Did you notice that the, that the tax collector, what he asked for was mercy, which means simply to not be punished for what he's done, but what he received was grace, which is more than mercy. Which means to only, not only not be punished for what you've done, but to actually receive a gift on top of not being punished for what you've done. And do you know that God has that kind of grace, that kind of amazing grace for you? Do you know that he wants to give you that? Do you know that that's why he sent his son? Do you know that that's what he has to offer? Do you know that he's not selling you anything? Do you know that he's only offering you something? And it's freedom from the separation from him and the condemnation from him that that you deserve and that I deserve? And do you know that you can put down the mask? You can stop trying to justify yourself. And do you realize how flimsy this looks in the face of God? And do you realize how flimsy this looks to those who know you well? You can put it down. What you'll find on the other side of setting this mask down is beautiful. Look at how Jesus wraps up the story. I tell you, this man tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humble but the one who humbles himself will be exalted that word justified we've talked about it before it's a legal term it means to be declared righteous by a righteous judge means to be declared righteous finally and permanently by someone who can actually make the declaration self-righteousness is so much more flimsy than that and not final Self-righteousness is just our vain attempt to pretend that we're okay when we're not okay. We need to be honest, folks. Some of us, we have like a broken leg and we're walking around dragging that thing around and everybody's going, hey, bro, your leg is broke. We're like, no, I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm training for a 10K. I'm good, right? We're coughing all over the place and people are like, are you sick? And we're like, no, I'm not sick. I'm good. I'm fine. And people are like, you're clearly sick. The pathway to being okay is never going to be through denial. It's never going to lead to being okay by pretending that you're okay when you're not okay. The pathway to healing is never through pretending that you're not sick and that you're not broken. But we do it all the time, don't we? And we'll always be able to find it when we pay attention to wherever in our life we're making horizontal comparisons to other people. That's where we're falling into this trap of self-righteousness. This is how it looks in my life. I'll, I'll lose my temper with one of my kids, my, my sons or my daughter, and, and I'll justify it by saying I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just being a good disciplinarian, or I'll justify it by saying, well, I'm not as bad as that dad I saw the other day at the park. At least I didn't lose it like that guy lost it, right? I'll be cold and distant or mean even to my wife, and I'll justify it by saying, well, I'm tired, and if she only knew everything I was carrying, and I'll justify it by going, well, I'm better than that guy, seen the way he treats his wife. 
when I'm passive-aggressive or mean-spirited or sarcastic at the office, I'll justify it by saying, well, this is the cost of doing business. This is what it takes when other people don't do their job. This is what you got to resort to in order to get things done. I'll justify it. I'll watch some show on HBO that has absolutely no redemptive value or any level of quality that actually helps my heart in any way, shape, or form, and I'll justify it by saying, well, at least I don't look at porn like all those other men, right? We do it all the time. Our self-justification isn't real, and therefore it never helps. Pretending you're okay when you're not okay is no way to be okay. See, folks, this is why, we never think in these terms, really, but this is why grace is actually very deeply offensive to us. Grace offends us all the time because grace requires me to admit that I am not okay. Grace requires me to admit that I cannot produce in myself any level of righteousness that's acceptable before God. Grace says plainly, Scott, you're not enough. You're sick. You're flawed. You have a great need and you can't provide what you need. But grace doesn't stop there. Grace says clearly, but Jesus is enough. Jesus has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And forgiveness is available and grace and mercy are all on the table because Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead. And then he made a proclamation to say, you can put down your mask because I paid for everything that's behind your mask. And he looks at us and goes, you're mine now permanently which means that you can trust me which means that when you fail when you fall when you mess up you can trust that I haven't let go of you that there's nothing you could do that would ever separate you from me that I've got you you don't have to pretend you're okay when you're not okay you don't have to try to justify your sinful actions by calling them something that they're not you can call them what they are be confronted with it fall on grace and embrace truth and move forward in the confidence of knowing that Jesus loves you no matter what you can put down your mask and you can stop pretending 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's for our sake that he did that. He's not a salesman. He's always giving. He's not trying to take anything from us. He's trying to give us something. But what we do is this. We'll, We'll take these masks and we'll put them up and we'll hedge our bets because we have trouble believing that God could be that kind of God would want that for us and so we'll pretend before God and before everybody around us that everything's okay when it clearly is not okay so here's what I want to do I want to I want to land this with just three challenges and they they get a little more difficult and they'll require a little more courage each one of them the first one's very very easy it goes like this would you commit just as at some point this week reading this story maybe twice It's reading this story in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14, the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector a couple times. And let's just kind of let that story resonate and rattle around in our heart and in our mind. And then, if we're really brave, maybe this week we can start to make a list that begins with this phrase, I try to justify myself when. And it'll show up in all those places where we make horizontal comparisons to other people. And you can make that list on your phone, on post-it notes, on your journal, doesn't matter. Whatever that is. And then if, you, if we really want to be brave, we'll take that list. I try to justify myself when? Show it to somebody. Find someone that loves you, that you can trust, somebody that you know wants good for you, and show them your list. Maybe broker a deal right now going, I'll show you my list if you'll show me yours. <laughs> 
And let's take a look at those things and then maybe just put it all out on the table and you can ask that honest question. Do you see this stuff in my life? Do you see when I make these horizontal comparisons? Do you see the way that I try to justify myself? And the person you're sitting across that table with will probably go, yeah, I've seen it for a long time. And then it'll work the other way as well because everybody, we all see through each other's masks more clearly. We all think we're doing just a really good job of pretending and that nobody knows. But on the outside, this this looks ridiculous, (laughs) doesn't it? We're not as good at pretending as we like to think we are. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand across all our campuses. We're going to pray. And at the end of that prayer, I'm going to dismiss you and we're done. All right? So let's pray. Father, come before you right now. And uh, Father, we work so hard to prove ourselves. We work so hard to justify ourselves. We exhaust ourselves trying to pretend that we're okay when we're clearly not okay. And the person who is fooled the least is you. You see past all of that stuff and you know what's really going on in our hearts and what's really going on in our minds. You understand the inner motivations of everything that we do and say. And yet, Father, somehow you love us still, which is amazing. And not only do you love us, but you offer us this amazing thing called grace. And so, Father, could we this week just be in just come into contact with that amazing grace and could we extend that to one another and would you give us the courage that we need to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with you and to be honest with one another so that we can pursue this path of healing that you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.